Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. We continue to look at the temptation of Jesus. The, the account of Jesus' temptation is mentioned in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew writes, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting forty days and forty nights he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Mark's gospel gives very little information other than just the fact of the temptation. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, Mark says, in uh, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And then Luke writes, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So Mark and Luke both make the point that Jesus' temptation was not the three at the end of the 40 days. He was being tempted throughout this 40-day period of time. The three, that, uh, three temptations that Matthew gives us and that Luke gives as well were kind of, the, I think, the most intense, the, uh, the most serious, partly because Jesus had fasted for 40 days and, and he was at the point of starvation, and partly because for 40 days he was badgered by the devil, being tempted in all sorts of ways. Uh, it's, it's amazing to us uh, that Jesus survives all of this without sinning, without wanting to sin, without ever giving in to sin, uh, we're, we're accustomed to looking at the three that are listed and saying, well, I don't know how I would do there with those three. Uh, I think that for 40 days, Jesus faced temp- temptations that would have ended us on day two or day three or day four. It was a nonstop, intense period of time. And as I mentioned last week, we're taking these temptations one at a time, there's a lot to say about each one. There's a lot to learn here. So rather than rushing through, we're just going to patiently look at the individual statements that are made. This first temptation is a temptation of body versus soul. It's really a temptation of what's the priority of your life. Back in the Old Testament, the book of Job, which is perhaps the oldest book of the Old Testament, not necessarily the oldest stories, but the oldest book. In chapter 1, Satan goes before God and he, and he, he receives permission to test Job. And God says, you can do anything that you want, but don't touch him. And so Job suffered the loss of property and servants and most of all his children. In chapter 2, Satan comes back and God again says, To Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's righteous. There's nobody like him. And Satan says there to God, all a man has, he will give for his life. Let me touch his body, in other words. Let me cause him physical suffering, and he'll curse you to your face. Well, that came probably from observation of mankind. Satan was right. Most people, to preserve their life, 
will give in to sin. And it, it doesn't take starvation. All it has to take is, is just a little bit of hunger. So the tempter comes and says to Jesus, Matthew 4, 3, if you are the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. I have always kind of mentally heard the Bible. I don't think I've ever read the Bible as just words on a page. I've always heard this mental, and I read that way anyway. When I read other books, I've, I've kind of got the voice in my head. And I'd always imagined Satan coming up with this really aggressive challenge. If you are, if you are the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. But in thinking about it this week, I think I was wrong. I don't think it's very tempting for someone to come up, stick their finger in your face, and challenge you to a duel. I don't think that's designed to get you to go along with them. I think when Satan came to Eve in Genesis 3, he didn't come as an enemy, he came as a friend. He came as a sympathizer. In Genesis 3, he says to Eve, has God really said you can't eat? And I think when he comes to Jesus, he comes and he says, this is horrible. You're the son of God. You're starving. You've gone 40 days without food. You're going to die. Command that these stones be made bread and eat. I think that that's a harder temptation to deal with. I think the lies of somebody posing as a friend is harder than a challenge. The temptation is very clear. Give your body priority over your soul. Give your physical desires priority. Put them at the top of the list. Scratch the itch. Satisfy the desire. As long as nobody's being hurt, then it's okay. What harm does it do? There's a modern message for you. Besides, it's nobody's business but yours. There's nobody around. But Jesus answers, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It sounds like you should put it on a motivational poster with kind of the colored background and the really pretty artistic script. Or maybe a bumper sticker, motivational calendar. But Jesus speaks words that are packed with meaning. He does three things at least. First, he elevates scripture to the highest possible degree. Second, he, he sets a context for his answer, and that context is Deuteronomy 8. That's what he's quoting. Is Deuteronomy 8.2. And third, he puts his physical needs or his, his spiritual needs before his physical needs, even though his physical needs are about to kill him. So I want to talk about these points. First, Jesus elevates scripture. He elevates scripture. He rests completely in the authority of the written word of God, as he does in the other temptations as well. He keeps saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. Now, I want you to remember this. I, re I want you to remember that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. He is the living, eternal word in human flesh. If Jesus had turned to Satan and said, look, pal, I'm going to stay faithful to my father so you can just go play in traffic, 
that would have become scripture. I'm not trying to be flippant. Everything Jesus said by definition is the word of God. Everything that was recorded that he said is written scripture. Jesus had created Satan as a glorious angel. He's the creator. He spoke him into existence. He had all power. He had all authority. Jesus alone on the face of the earth has the right to say I because he is after all the I am. And yet Jesus responds by quoting scripture and not just by quoting any scripture. He reaches back 1,500 years into history to what Moses told the people of Israel. He gives scripture its full authority. What I want to do is look at Deuteronomy 8 to see the context of what Jesus has said. I don't have it on the screen. You can follow along in your Bible or or just listen. As Deuteronomy 8 opens up, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. Now, these are the, the children of the generation delivered out of Egypt 40 years before. You remember the story? They were delivered out of Egypt. They went into the wilderness after uh, just a month or two, three months maybe. They, they'd made their way close to the promised land. Twelve spies were sent into the land to just check it out and prepare. They came back. Two of the twelve said, God is going to give us this land. and Boy, is it a good land. Ten of them said, there is no way we can do this. And so God said, all right, you spent 40 days in the land looking at it, and you came back unbelieving. You're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And, and he basically waited for that entire first generation to die. Everybody who was 20 and older when they left Egypt died before they ever entered the promised land. Moses is now speaking to their children and to those who had been under the age of 20 when they left Egypt. And he gives them the theme of really of all of this, but of chapter eight, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. That's the theme. You need to obey God. He reminded the people of Israel of why they had been 40 years in the wilderness. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God knew what was in their hearts. He knew that they wouldn't obey. They didn't know that they wouldn't obey. So he puts them to the test to show them their their belief that they're going to trust him is a false belief. They're they're not capable of that. Then Moses explains the, the, the core of what God wants them to understand. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you didn't know and your fathers didn't know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The people of Israel left Egypt and they brought food with them. They brought a bunch of property with them and loot with them and riches and all of that. And they brought food. And within a month, the food's going away. They're eating it. 30 days after they have left Egypt to the day, they begin complaining bitterly against Moses and Aaron because they're about out of food. 
I was raised in the desert. Southern California is technically a desert because of the rainfall. We spent time in the desert riding motorcycles. We spent time in the desert water skiing at the Colorado River. And that desert actually has quite a lot of life. There's a lot of plants. There's a lot of animals. The place that the that the people of Israel were wandering on the Sinai Peninsula has nothing. It's like the surface of the moon. You might find a little scrubby weed every once in a while, but it's, it's not high desert. It's not a place where much grows. Certainly not food. God led them out there, and he waited for them to get hungry. And then he gave them manna. And for the next 40 years, they didn't have to be self-sufficient. For the next 40 years, all they had to do was go out every morning, six days a week, and collect what they needed for the day. By measure, God said so much per person. On the sixth day, he gave them enough for the Sabbath day so they didn't have to go out on the Sabbath day to collect it. Moses reminds them that God's favor was not grudging, it wasn't stingy, but it was abundant and it covered every area of life. He says, your clothing didn't wear out for 40 years. And he, he says, this is interesting, your foot did not swell these 40 years. They're walking the whole time. But physical detriment to the traveling? No. The clothing doesn't wear out, they don't wear out. And so he reminds them that since God had delivered them from Egypt, God had the right to their undivided love and worship and obedience for the remainder of their lives and the life of the nation. He says, know, in, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. They were heading for a land that was rich, and a wonderful place full of the blessings of God. And so he reminds them that those future blessings are purely gifts of the grace of God. They're not anything that they've earned. They're not anything that they've deserved. He says, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. And then he defines good land. It is a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack, lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. The point of saying a land whose stones of, of, of our iron isn't to say it's going to be miserable to work the land. It's to say the mineral riches in the ground are abundant. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. You shall bless the Lord your God because of this gift of grace. And then he warns them against becoming proud. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, by not keeping his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, 
who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And then Moses closes the chapter by saying, don't forget your God. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Just like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, he's defining what it means to be a recipient of the blessings of God and to live in faithfulness because of the goodness of God, because of the love of God. Jesus prioritized his soul over his body. Now, putting your physical life ahead of your spiritual life costs everything. We, we see it all around us. It just costs everything. And when you think about what it meant for Jesus to say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of, that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus was literally starving to death. He hadn't eaten in 45 days. By that point, he was in a state of extreme starvation. He had no body fat left. His muscles were being consumed by his body. His proteins were being broken down for nutrition, and he is heading into organ failure. Some people who starve to death will starve in less than 40 days. Some have gone seven or eight weeks without food, but typically the average person around 45 to 50 days without any food by mouth, you die. Jesus is literally starving to death. Probably all of us have said at some point, boy, I'm starving. Not close. We're just hungry. He is literally starving to death. He is literally just days from death. And he says, my physical needs still don't matter as much as my spiritual needs. My physical needs still don't matter as much as my spiritual needs. He said in Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, what would a man give in, in return for his soul? And the Gospels and the Scriptures have repeated stories about those who sought pleasure, who sought riches, who sought comfort, who sought the easy way to the cost of their spirit, to the cost of their soul, and ended up condemned. Let's bring this home. What did Jesus accomplish through his temptation? He, he accomplished three things, I think. First of all, he demonstrated his complete and total righteousness before the Father. This wasn't just showing off. Jesus was going to die as a sacrifice for sin. He had to be a sinless sacrifice. He had to be without, without blemish. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, 
holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. But Jesus had been declared to be without sin he at his at his conception. Just a page or two earlier in the gospel of Matthew when the angel comes to Joseph He says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus has holy origins. He's sinless in his conception. There's no sin nature there. He lives the next 30 years without sin, not even the smallest sin. Not even the kind of sins we don't even know we're committing. He never violated the law of God, the nature of God, the intention of the law of God, ever. He's declared to be the Son of God at the end of Matthew chapter 3. God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God hates sin. If Jesus had committed even one sin earlier in his life, God would not have said, I am well pleased with him. So you have this example of his early life and you have the declaration of God. And now you have this proof where Jesus is led out. Mark says, driven out by the Holy Spirit. He fasts for 40 days while he's being tempted. And at the end of that 40 days come the three big guns. And the first one is put your body ahead of your soul. Value your physical needs above your spiritual needs. And Jesus says, no, it is written. And in doing that, he demonstrates under the kinds of conditions he would never again face his righteousness and his sinlessness. He would never go through this kind of an experience again. Even crucifixion was not in a sense, as bad as this. That crucifixion was over in six, seven hours. This is 40 days. So the first thing that Jesus accomplished was to demonstrate and prove his complete, total righteousness and holiness. The second thing that he did is he earned the righteousness which is imputed to those who trust him. When we are born again, when we are saved, God justifies us. That means that he declares us righteous. And he justifies us by not just by waving his hand and saying, okay, we'll just forget everything else. He justifies us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and he takes the righteousness that Jesus earned through his life actively and passively and imputes it to our account. When you're born again, when you're born again, there's a series of theological steps that happen all at one time that the scripture talks about. The scripture doesn't link them in that way, but it talks about them and we can put them in a a rational order. You hear the effectual preaching of the word of God. 
The Holy Spirit grants you the ability to effectually hear that word of God so that as it's preached, you know that the scripture applies to you. You're aware of your sin. You're aware of the judgment to come. You're aware of the Savior and what he did. The Spirit gives faith in that message that you have heard preached. And you believe. In the moment of that belief, you are justified and declared righteous. And then you die with Christ. You're joined with him in his death. And then you're raised with Christ in newness of life. And then you repent because all of that has happened in the twinkling of an eye. In a breath, you you breathe out, you take a breath in, and there's a change. It's that quick. And as you breathe out again, you're turning away from sin and you're turning toward Christ. And with that repentance comes a transformation of your life, a transformation of your thoughts and your ideas, transformation of your, your deeds, That happens over time. It's not instant. It's not complete until we go to be with the Lord. But there begins to be a change. If there's no change, there's no salvation. Because salvation isn't just getting your reservation for the future. Salvation is entering into a living relationship with Jesus Christ today and right now. Since every sin deserves hell, Jesus had to be sinless in order for his righteousness to be imputed to us, to be credited to our account. It would have done no good if Jesus had committed even just one sin, even the smallest sin, just the tiniest thing, to violate the nature of God, to violate the law of God. It would do you no good to have almost righteousness imputed to you. If there was any benefit, the benefit would just be the eternity you spend in hell wouldn't be as bad but it's still an eternity in hell. And just for the record, nobody in hell is going to be saying, boy, this is terrible, but at least I'm not going through what he's going through. It's complete and utter for everybody there. In order for for God to impute perfect righteousness to us, Jesus had to earn that righteousness. So the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith both say literally the same thing about this. God imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. What is your righteousness before God right now? It's Jesus' righteousness. If you're in him, if you have trusted him, not just at a point in time, but your trust is in him, If you have been born again and there's been transformation in your life and you stand before God in prayer, what you stand before God in is the righteousness of Christ. You're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He demonstrates that he has earned in these temptations that he is earning that righteousness. The third thing that Jesus did is he demonstrated the means and the reason by which we resist temptation. He demonstrates the means and the reason. Jesus is a perfect man. He is the, uh, he is the ultimate man. He, he showed us in his life how a perfect man lives before God. He cited scripture. What is our means of resisting temptation? It has to be scripture. 
Now, I resist temptation with all kinds of things. Temptation comes. No, I don't really want to do that. Temptation comes. No, my mom wouldn't like it if I did that. Temptation comes. No, I need to learn self-discipline. See, what's common about all of those answers to temptation is me. I, I, I. If anybody ever had the right to say in answer to temptation, I don't want it, it was Jesus. But even Jesus doesn't say I. Even Jesus says it is written. Jesus answers temptation with the word. Why should we? Well, we should do it because he did it that way. But we should do it too because if you simply say, no, I don't want to do that, your own flesh will talk you into doing it anyway. And certainly if there's a satanic temptation happening, Satan's going to get around your I don't want to by showing you that you really do. If your answer is no, my mom wouldn't like it, my dad wouldn't like it, what is your flesh going to say? What is the tempter going to say? Well, they'll understand. There's always an answer. There's always a loophole with personal responses to temptation. You know what there's no response to, no answer to, no loophole for? It is written. It is written. And in giving us the means by which we resist, which is the word of God, Jesus also gives us the reason we resist. Why do we resist temptation? Because it is written. Why do we resist financial sin, sexual sin? Why do we resist substance abuse? Why do we resist all of the various things out there? Because it's not good for us? No, because God said no. Why do we love God first and our neighbor as ourselves? Because God said do that. Not because it's the right thing, but because God said that we need to do that. Why should we defend the lives of the unborn? Because it makes sense? No, because God said every human being is created in his image. And an unlawful death is murder. And that gives us not only the means of resistance, it gives us the reason, and it puts our feet on solid rock. Remember what Jesus said, the one who hears my words and does them is like a man who built his house on solid bedrock. And the storm came and the floods rose and the winds blew and they beat against that house. But the house stood because it was built on a foundation. The person, he says, who hears my words and doesn't do them, the person who says, I heard those words, but I'll substitute my own truth, my own ideas. That person, he says, has built his, his house upon the sand. And when the storm rises and the wind blows and the floods rise, there's nothing to land on because it's all based on self. It's all based on our desire our wisdom, our thoughts. If Jesus rested on the authority of Scripture, how much more should we? Father, we thank you for your word, for the truth of it. Please touch our hearts. Give us strength. Give us wisdom. Build us and grow us and teach us. And Lord, we lift up the man who is here. And we ask that 
whether it was conviction or boredom or another appointment, that you would touch his heart with what he heard this morning. Have mercy on him and give him life. Plant your gospel deep in our hearts that we may know you. Teach us the, the way better and better and better each day that we may glorify you, that we may live with the fullness of joy and the confidence in who you are. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.